Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered cold-filtered, and cold-packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When it's time for a new credit card, the best ones do way more than just buy stuff. And that's why U.S. Bank offers credit cards that make every day more rewarding. Earn cash back. Score points when you shop, dine out, travel, or binge watch. Or get a low intro APR. U.S. Bank credit cards were designed to fit your lifestyle. So make every day more rewarding. And check out usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Roadware Mixed Martial Arts Podcast brought to you by ESPN Plus, the home of UFC 250. I'm Jake Litarski, joined today by John Littering. If you're on Twitter, give John a follow at J-O-N-L-I-T-T-E-R-I-N-E. You can follow me at Roto Jake. Today is basically a historic day in the history of DraftKings MMA. Not today, but Saturday will be, uh, because we've got a million bucks on the line. UFC 250, Amanda Nunes versus Felicia Spencer. First ever millionaire maker on DraftKings for MMA. This is a big uh, big deal for us MMA fans, us MMA content providers here. There's million makers in golf and, and MMA coming up, so uh, definitely as sports start to come back a little bit, uh, we're getting a bigger taste of the action here. So very excited to bring uh, bring some content uh, break down this card with John here, um, and I guess just to get started, John, man, how have you been since the last fight? Uh, are you impressed with Gilbert Burns? Any other current events worth uh, noting here? Yeah, I mean, I think you'd have to be impressed with Gilbert Burns. Uh, what he did to Tyron Woodley last weekend was extremely impressive, um, and I think it's, I really think Burns is legitimately terrific, but I'm really worried about Woodley, uh, 38 years old, and back-to-back losses to Burns and Kamar Usman and not just losses just dominate you know dominated in both fights not the least bit competitive and um that's really concerning we haven't touched much on uh how Justin Gaethje looked because that was the last card that we got together to break down here I mean that's been phenomenal I cannot wait for him to get a crack at Khabib and see what happens and and then the other thing uh in the most recent you know or 
I guess, pay-per-view card, the abrupt retirement of Henry Cejudo. I mean, that changes the whole landscape of the uh, bantamweight division. I mean, do you think this is permanent, or how long do you think this is going to last? It's hard to say. I mean, I would certainly think it's going to last for a little while, if for no other reason than uh, you have a couple big bantamweight fights on this card, and then you have, sounds like the UFC is looking to do uh, Piotr Jan and Jose Aldo for the title that's now vacant. So Mm -hmm. if, you know, you add all that together, you're looking at, the division being, you know, fairly tied up for at least the next little while. Mm-hmm. So well, you I got Marlon Moraes out there uh, yeah. calling out Dominic Cruz today here. So there's a lot of exciting fights in this division, and it definitely gets started on Saturday night. So that's a good kind of segue into uh, what we want to discuss today. But uh, before we jump in, I wanted to mention an awesome promo we're running with our friends over at ESPN+. Plus. If you sign up through the links on our site, you get a free month of RotoWire. That's full service, all sports, plus DFS, betting tools, what have you. Just go to rotowire.com slash subscribe and locate the ESPN Plus promo on the bottom. Or if you already have a RotoWire account, uh, if you don't, haven't subscribed yet, just click on subscribe now in the top right to begin i'll put the uh another direct link in the podcast description but if you're getting the if you're getting the pay-per-view you're going to need to have espn plus anyway might as well get some free rotowire content on that and obviously we run we were talking about this beforehand we're running content for all sports that out there kbo and bundesliga all that stuff is hot and we're getting going basically anything that uh that uh you could want content for you can find it here on rotowire but John, let's get started here. We've got a main event, a featherweight championship on the line. The greatest female fighter of all time, Amanda Nunes, comes in as a massive, massive betting favorite against Felicia Spencer. I mean, the money line on that is Nunes minus 630. The comeback is Spencer, Spencer plus 465. The DraftKings salaries, you know, this is about as high as it gets. I mean, you see some crazier favorites, maybe a little higher, but Nunes is 9,400. Spencer is 6,800. And the thing about this is uh, you don't, necessarily see odds to finish like this in women's fights all the time but minus 335 vegas thinks someone's getting stopped in this one john we don't have to break go too far into this uh you know technical breakdown but um i guess i'm looking to see you know can amanda nunez get the finish that we need uh to hit that value in DraftKings? and and i guess what's your general take on this fight in this matchup I think she can uh, if you look at felicia spencer who fought chris cyborg just about a year ago uh, Spencer lasted until the th- end of the third round in that fight, but she took a ton of punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, it could have been over earlier than that, and she managed to survive. And then, so if you want to go by that, look at what Nunez did to Cyborg. So mm-hmm. I definitely think there's a scenario in which Nunez can pay off despite her high salary. Um, it's the, the it's the same case this division's been in for a long, long time. They just they essentially created the whole thing in the first place for Cyborg. And it's pretty much left the division without any legitimate contenders. Uh, even Nunez, yes, she beat Cyborg, but she's a natural bantamweight. So even their champions essentially fighting up a division. It's just it's a really, really difficult situation for the company. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and the tough thing is, is if, if she gets back by Spencer, like a lot of people expect her to, I mean, what's next out there? You know, is she going to fight Megan Anderson, who got beat by Spencer? Maybe. Otherwise, you're basically fighting bantamweights that are moving up, so you might as well go back and defend bantamweight next. Yeah, yeah. it's hard. I mean, Spencer's only lost one fight in her career. She's 8-1, but that was the cyborg fight. But she's won exactly one fight in a row you know it's so it's not like she's run off some long winning streak and she's deserving of a title shot this is a fight that's essentially essentially necessitated by the circumstances um and who knows we don't know what's going on behind the scenes with the whole pandemic and everything uh perhaps the ufc could have 
was trying to book a bigger fight for the main event here or something, and they couldn't get it done for whatever reason. So, uh, you know, we don't know what's going on, but it, it's tough. I, this is a hard fight to really break down because it's essentially really straightforward. Like, I'd love to give you some sort of analysis that's different from what everybody's saying, but it's just not there. Um, I mean, every aspect of the game, I think Nunez is superior. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, the one thing I, if you want to say anything about Nunez, maybe you could say she definitely got hit more in her last fight against Jermaine Durandamy than she did in recent memory. Mm-hmm. She absorbed more punishment on the feet, but that's not Spencer's game. Spencer mm-hmm. is essentially just a straight up ground specialist. Um, mm-hmm. She's won eight. She was won eight fight, eight fight wins in her career. Half of them have come via submission. So she, she's essentially a ground specialist. And I will say, I do think she probably is more deserving of of title fight at this time than Megan Anderson would be. But, you know, the bar there is kind of low. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole host of other options. So, look, it is what it is. And you're right. If Nunes wins this fight going away like we expect her to, um, the division's going to be in even worse shape than it is now because that's going to leave them with one less quote-unquote contender mm-hmm. and they're just going to they're going to have to come up with some other they're going to have to come up with something creative whether mm-hmm. maybe the season get, of the ultimate fighter i yeah i, I don't something know like that i mean they're going to have to do something yeah whether it's i don't know sign somebody who no, they're not talking about who might be a legitimate threat get somebody to move up and what, you know, whatever it is, they're going to have to do something creative because as it is right now, at least for going by who's currently on the roster, these are the types of fights you're going to continue to see in this division. Exactly. So I want to bring this talk back to DFS just a little bit here. Um, you know, at 9,400, she is the highest priced fighter on the slate. People are wondering, you know, is that price tag too high? Maybe um, I'm not one of them. The only downside uh, in Nunes, I think, is you're going to see very, very high ownership. And the reason for that is because it should be. I mean, her last four fights, she scored 125, 109, 117, 123 DraftKings points. Had she been 9,400, and she hasn't been necessarily, for all those fights, that's 13.3x value, 11.6, 12.4, Speaking very generally in DFS terms, I mean, you're looking at about 10x to cash in a, in a tournament. If you want to have a shot at taking down one, you probably need 12x or greater, and that's pretty much where she's been at in those last four fights. I mean, she hasn't had under 104 DraftKings points since the Shevchenko fights that went to a decision. This is a five-round main event, um, so and it's the only five-round fight on the entire card, so there's more room to score that way. I just, I, I don't know. I, if I made, you know, 10 lineups, I, I got to think at least eight or nine of them are having Nunes in there because I'm confident in her to win. I'm pretty confident in her to get to get a stoppage, especially, I mean, despite how how tough we saw Spencer fight against Cyborg, well, not fight, but take punches, again, in the, in the later rounds, we'll see if uh, Nunes can have this, and, you know, maybe Spencer does get a takedown, but, you know, Nunes, we haven't seen it in a while, but her jiu-jitsu game is more than respectable, so I just, I don't see a way that uh, Nunes loses, I think she can score, tally up a lot of strikes, she'll have a speed advantage and just a general stand-up advantage, so I think this is, um, I mean, this is... As close to, uh, I don't want to call it a free square necessarily because you're going to have to zig and zag and do some weird things in large field GPPs and you definitely don't want 100% exposure to anybody, but the exposure here has got to be pretty high. I have no problem paying up 9400 for 
No, she, I think she's definitely worth it. It's just as you mentioned, you just it's always a risk because it's just such a large portion of your salary cap dedicated to one fighter. And if God forbid something goes wrong, it's almost impossible to cash. Mm-hmm. But that being said, it's she's probably if not one of the biggest locks on the card mm-hmm. so you definitely want to try and get her in somewhere yeah um and last thing I, I don't really see enough scoring from spencer even in a five-round fight to consider stacking this sometimes you know we always kind of have this conversation with the five-round fights but uh I, I, maybe in a cash game if you want to be able to put like o'malley and menafield and some other giant favorites in your lineup here but I, there's just there's not much benefit to that either no there's not um Spencer is not a great stand-up fighter, and mm-hmm. if that's and she and on top of that, she's giving up a ton of strength to Nunez in addition to the power. So um, you would seem to think her biggest and only chance of winning would be on the mat, and that doesn't lend itself to stack potential because she just wouldn't rack up the necessary points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not like she's going to take Nunez down eight times and get ten reversals. That's just I, I don't see it. So, yeah, so I'm pretty much out on Spencer. You know, I, I usually will make ten, twenty lineups for for a contest or something along those lines. I don't think I'm going to have little or any Spencer exposure in this one necessarily. But like I said, I'm, I'm up on Nunez. I think she's uh, a pretty safe play. You almost have to lock her in in cash games, and uh, I I think there's a fairly good chance she's in the millionaire winner. I mean. That's pretty much how we're going to end each of these fight breakdowns. Like, which one of these fighters has a better chance to be in a millionaire winner? Because, heck, I want one of you guys to win a million bucks. So um, we'll leave it at that with Nunes Spencer. want to move on to the co-main in the bantamweight division, one of three bantamweight fights we're going to talk about on this card. These I watched a little tape here. These fights are very challenging to break down here. Um, but let's see where things stand here. We'll start with uh, Rafael Asuncial against Cody Garbrandt. Asuncial 7,600, Garbrandt. 8,600, that matches up with the uh, the betting odds here. Garbrandt minus 155, comeback on Asuncial plus 135. The odds to finish here, uh, surprising, minus 155 here. Um, I don't know, John, what do you think about this one? This is one I went back and forth on a little bit. Um, it's an interesting fight because both guys have some red flags. Uh, they've combined to lose five fights in a row, which is really hard to believe when you think about the quality names of both these guys both these guys who are you know legitimate top contenders and garbrandt's case a former ufc bantamweight champion i ended up picking a sunsau for two main reasons i was leaning towards him anyway and then i saw the what i call what i think is a fairly substantial gap in salary between the two i don't think there's a thousand dollars worth of salary difference between these two guys garbrandt's 8600 a sunsau 7600 so that kind of just reinforced reinforced the way i was leaning to begin with my main issue with garbrandt is and this is going to sound eerily similar to what i said about justin gaethje before his fight against tony ferguson is He's a stubborn brawler with terrible fight IQ. He's emotional. He goes in and tries to knock his opponent's heads off, and you can't win every single fight that way. It's not possible. Now, Gaethje deserves a ton of credit in the Ferguson fight because he I didn't think he could, and he changed the way he fought. He was still aggressive, and he still displayed power, but he was much more smarter about picking his spots. So full credit to him there. Now I have to see Garbrandt do it before I believe it. Um, and the other main, my biggest concern about Garbrandt is I am worried about his chin. He's just, even if you want to get on Gaethje for being a stubborn brawler, 
you know for a fact how tough he is and his durability. He could take 100 billion punches before you get him out of there. Um, I don't think that's the case with Cody. Um, he's another guy with a background in wrestling, and we say this all the time, a guy with a background in wrestling who doesn't use the skills. It just it's all it's guys all over the sport. I'll never understand it. Yeah, I don't know if you want to intentionally be going to the mat with Asuncion though. So I think it'll probably be smart. No, for him to I, just in, I just meant I just meant in general. I just meant in general. Yeah, fair he enough. just yeah he doesn't use it. And look, I'm not crazy on Asuncion moving forward either. Um, he turns 38 years old next month, and you know we just talked about earlier in the show about Tyron Woodley, who isn't 38 now, and is clearly showing signs of decline. And obviously, they're two different situations, but I just simply think when I looked at this, on top of the slight discount you're getting on Sunsau, on a Sunsau, I just saw slightly more red flags with Garbrandt that had me worried. Mm-hmm. Um, would Cody? Would I be shocked if Cody won? Not at all. But I just think. Uh, when you combine the value with the potential, and don't get me wrong, Garbrandt certainly has more theoretical long-term upside because he's younger, um, which always gives uh, you know youth is the ultimate advantage in this sport. But if he and he's Cody's also been injury prone, you know we we we've, I haven't met, we didn't mention that um, all the stuff after you know the TJ Dillashaw fights and all the issues he had. So there are just too many red flags here for me to really get on Garbrandt. I'm not particularly you know, optimistic about a Sunsau either, but when you combine the value, he just seems like a safer play. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, want, I did put in my notes something about the kind of injury history of Garbrandt. I mean, there's been back injuries, hand and wrist injuries. He was actually scheduled uh, for this Asuncio fight in March 12th, but uh, you know, kind of before the pandemic stuff, he ended up having to pull out. He went to the hospital for a weird shin infection and then had a you know inflamed lymph nodes issue, um, flu-like symptoms, a lot of uh, a lot of things that you know I didn't have any follow up on that. You know, these guys definitely aren't required to submit to us a medical report, but there is some injury history there. But the biggest thing, like you touched on, is you have to. You know, when you're deciding how you want to handle this fight, you have to think, you have to pretty much make your opinion on Garbrandt's chin one way or another. And when I first saw this fight and I first saw the DraftKings salary, I immediately clicked Asuncial into my lineup because of the value. And I'm thinking, like, well, what does Garbrandt have here? You know, you have to decide. I, I kind of put it like this uh, In 2018, there are two fighters, uh, James Vick and Benil Dariush. James Vick had pretty much two straight knockouts, and he ended up getting knocked out two more times and you know people kind of think of him as toast now and then on the other hand you have Benil Dariush in 2018 took two knockouts and three fights but now he's back on a four-fight winning streak he came back so you have to decide which end of the spectrum here that you that you are on with Garbrandt so I kind of look back at his other fights and um, those three knockouts in a row two of them were to TJ Dillashaw who uh was pretty much juiced to the gills on uh, on EPO or whatever it was. You know, that self-admitted that. Um, so I, I, how much did that play a role in the knockout? You know, you can't necessarily teach timing with with those type of drugs. Maybe, maybe not. Um, and then the other the other one was Pedro Munoz. And I, I watched the Munoz fight against Aljamain Sterling uh, before this, kind of in preparation to break down the next fight we're going to do. And Munoz impresses the heck out of me. He's a beast. So if you're going to buy the chin narrative, you do have to take into context what some of those uh, what some of those uh, knockouts you know the context around some of those knockouts. So that started to kind of bring me more back in the direction of Garbrandt. And then the real big thing here is thinking about it from a DFS standpoint. I wouldn't be surprised if Asuncial's ownership is close to, if not greater, than that of Garbrandt. So. Yeah, he'll be someone that uh, will be low owned by people trying to get five or six wins. 
But then you look, he hasn't scored 100 points in the history of DraftKings. The last time he did that was before uh, DraftKings even existed here. Um, so even if you are on a Suncial, I'm thinking pretty low exposure despite the low salary. I mean, you might have to because it's. It, we'll, we'll see how many other viable underdog plays there are. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he's recorded 50 or more significant strikes just once in the last five years in a fight. He did have four takedowns in his last fight against Sandhagen. But remember, that was in a loss. Um for me, he's more of a, a cash game underdog than a than a GPP player because his ceiling doesn't seem to be as high as that of Cody Garbrandt. You know, if Cody Garbrandt's chin holds up and he brings some of that knockout power that we've seen earlier, I mean, only two of Garbrandt's nine UFC fights have went to decision. Three of his first four fights in the UFC, Garbrandt finished. That's part of the reason he got to the title shot in the first place. And then... I was so on the fence with this one, so going back and forth, and then I realized the smaller cage. And uh, take a look at my Twitter. I tweeted out a graph that uh, uh, Richard Mann put together from a uh, Fightnomics Read book. Um, he illustrated it really well. Remember the cage at the Apex Center is five feet shorter than the standard UFC cage. And if you look, in, look at like bantamweight through welterweight, there's a pretty big difference in stoppages. And I know we can't take the last card as the lone sample size. You know, we had a couple of submissions that kind of switched it, but the the smaller cage plays a little bit of a role for me here, thinking someone like Asuncial, who I saw you know, in the uh, Sandhagen fight, that could just be a side effect of Sandhagen wanting to control the center of the octagon, but Asuncial kind of circling around the edge, there's less room to hide if Garbrandt lands his one shot and then wants to follow up and find you, he might be able to find you. So I think when it's all said and done, I'm flipping my pick back to Cody Garbrandt. This is when I was very very on the fence about, very hesitant about, but I think I'm going to go with Garbrandt because I think he can get the stoppage. I think the chin narrative might be a little bit overrated, and I think that the small cage goes into effect too much. But I want to hear from you, John. Am I overthinking this uh, small cage thing, or is is that a possible point here as we look at some of these bantamweight fights? No, I, I think it's a decent point. I, I would think the small cage would favor a guy who's so aggressive like Garbrandt perhaps he can get a Sunsal backed up against the cage and uh, you know we both certainly think he's the guy with more power so I could certainly see how that would play to his advantage I I, I watched in the small cage last week in the Woodley Burns card I like it I mm-hmm. wish they'd go with it all the time yeah, I think oh, it makes the fights more entertaining mm-hmm. yeah it forces the action there's more action you know I mean there are definitely fighters out there that don't won't like it because of their style but man I dig it and it's awesome for DFS because these lighter weight fights suddenly become more in play than they might normally be. So, you know, th- that's great for me too. Yeah. I, I, I just, I think it's more entertaining and I can understand why guys don't like it. It really limits your ability to kind of circle out if you're in trouble or whatever, you just don't have the lanes and the room to do so, but mm-hmm. I'd have no problem if they went to it full time. They won't, but it would mm-hmm. be cool if they did. Yeah. And a standard card, you know, some of these bantamweight fights I don't think would be as appealing, but now this one, I think a lot of people are going to be on that same Asuncio narrative, the same reason I had him down originally, the same reason you've got him, which I, I don't take is- issue with. I think he could very well win this fight, but it might be a little bit low scoring. And I think that a lot of people are going to take that logic, use Asuncio as a lot of salary relief, and I think that's going to help drive Garbrandt's ownership percentage down as compared to most fighters in that tier. And I think that could actually be helpful. I would say that Garbrandt has a better chance to be in the millionaire winning lineup than Asuncio does. What do you think about that? Uh, I think that's possible. I think if you're looking at guy, people who are trying to get value, if they want to put Nunez in their lineup, I certainly think Asuncio, who's 
well-known is certainly an option given his cheap price. You might see a lot of people go with that duo. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, and that was my entire first instinct. I mean, that was the first two that I clicked. One because, you know, if I'm if you're only doing one lineup, I like to backload them a little bit to kind of up the intensity at the end of the night. That, you know, not not a strategy thing, just a fun thing. But uh, those are the first two I clicked, and I can see a lot of people doing that. But uh, let's move on to the next Bantamweight fight, John. This one, uh, like the past one, was one that I think I went back and forth on a couple times and finally settled here. We got Aljamain Sterling going up against Corey Sandhagen. Uh, this is pretty close to a pick uh with the odds uh sterling minus 115 sandhagen minus 105 i wouldn't be surprised if you saw them both at an even minus 110 towards the end of the week in which case you know sandhagen might have odds value in that case but we've got sterling at 8200 on DraftKings, sandhagen 8000 unlike the other bantamweight fight the odds to finish on this one are plus 160 um I watched, you know, some of these most recent fights, the the Sandhagen, Asuncial, the Sterling, uh, Munoz fight, among others, to try to get a better picture of this one. I had a really tough time with this one, but I want to let you go first and and let us know how you see this fight, John. Uh, I think this is by far the best fight on this card. I don't think it's particularly close. Mm -hmm. Um, This is certainly the one I'm looking forward to the most, uh, other than the main event, which has the title attached to it. I certainly think this is the fight well, I know this is the fight on this card with the highest stakes. There's no doubt about that. Uh, the winner here, I, I want to say Dana White has even come out and said the winner here is going to be next in line for the Jan Aldo winner of the vacant title. So this is this is major, this fight. And like you mentioned, it's this one's close. I had a really hard time picking this one. Um, I, both honestly, guys, I just want to interject. I honestly thought that they were going to slap an, like a, a title on this after Cejudo and make this the co-main event, and that would allow them to build a card with two title fights on a card that yeah, isn't quite the same up to down, up and down as the last pay-per-view that was stacked. So I was actually surprised when they didn't make this fight for the title and are looking like they're going to do Jan Aldo instead, but just my two cents on that. It could be for a title. Very well. Oh, it definitely could. I think that's probably just more a case of the UFC trying to get two fights out of it instead of one. Mm-hmm. And uh, my main argument with this was that I'm not crazy about the idea that one of these guys has to lose right now, but they're both young enough that they can rebuild their value even if they come up short. So uh, looking at that a little deeper, I'm not too concerned. Um, look, it's close. Aljamain Sterling won four fights in a row. Um, his last loss was against Marais, a 67-second knockout, which maybe not the result, but I think how it happened was kind of fluky. Marais just went uh, – Sterling just went and got clobbered and he was out. But um, this – Sterling's good. He's tough. He's physical. He's an excellent wrestler, and he's always been a great wrestler. And unlike uh, earlier, what we were talking like Garbrandt, he's, he knows he's a good wrestler and he uses his skills. But his striking's really improved. It's kind of what we said a little bit, what we used to always talk about Henry Cejudo in the sense that, yes, we know your wrestling game is elite. But if you can just get your striking to just even average, your ceiling is the ceiling is so high. And Cejudo turned his striking into a strength. And you know, I'd certainly argue that Sterling is on that you know on that path too. His standup has really really improved. He's always in good shape. Um, the Marais fight aside, he's he's durable. Um, he's legit. If you watch his last couple fights, last this four fight winning streak, if you watch each fight. He's legitimately improved every time out. You could just you can be a, you know a casual fan and you can see the improvement just watching him. Mm-hmm. Um, he, but he he's in. For, this is going to be a tough. This is going to be tough. Um, Sandhagen has really taken the division by storm, 
and his biggest asset is his size. It's really, really difficult to find a guy who makes 135 pounds with ease and stands five foot eleven. It's it's just hard to do. You can't find someone to spar with you who's five, you know, who's your your weight and five foot eleven. And to Sanhagen's credit, he fights like a big guy in a division is supposed to. Well, um, you know, the one example I always give when I talk about that is Stefan Struve, who is whatever he is, seven feet tall or whatever, but still never really, never truly realized how he all he needs to do is just stand far away from guys so he can't get hit and just smash guys with kicks and long range strikes all day long. He just, you know, he never figured that out. But Sandhagen is good at that. Um, he lands 7.14 significant strikes a minute. Which is ridiculous, and you know, I, in my article I wrote that's unsustainable. But oh, yeah. that, well, the thing is, big... is he just has five UFC fights, and that's where yeah. those things come the from. The sample so. size is small. I mean, by comparison, Sterling, the sample size is much larger, but Sterling lands less than five per minute. He's at four point eight five, mm-hmm. which um, is still in in oh, still like high, the yeah. top tier for the yeah. thing. So that's that's sounds even crazy. That shows how crazy Sandhagen's number is. Yeah. So even if Sandhagen drops from you know seven point one four to whatever I don't know, say five and a half or something like that, it's that just gives you an idea that it's still a massive number. Um, I went back and forth here, just like I did on the last one. Um, I ended up settling on Sterling, and the main reason was that I trust Ray Longo and Matt Serra, Sterling's coaches, to realize how much of an advantage he should have on the mat. Um, I think Aljamain is going to make a concerted effort to not get not get an extended kickboxing match with Sanhagen. Um, he's certainly the better wrestler. And we go back to that small sample size you mentioned. Sanhagen has only had a handful of fights in the UFC, but his takedown defense is 27%, which is abysmal. You know, We always say... You know, average, I would say, what, what would you say average is somewhere around 70, something like, you know, 70 somewhere would be pretty good. Yeah, 80 70, would be elite, you know, 90, like to give you an example, Tyron Woodley uh, takedown defense when he came, he had the highest in welterweight history when he entered the octagon last weekend. And I want to say he was at like 93 or 94 percent or something, you know, some crazy number. But 27 percent is not good. And you mentioned the Sun Sao took him down on multiple occasions. Yes, Sanhagen won the fight, but Sun Tzu took him down on multiple occasions. And, you know, I certainly think at this point in Sun Tzu's career that Sterling is a bigger threat. So, look, this is close. If Sanhagen can somehow stay on his feet, he's definitely the better striker. He's bigger. He's longer. He probably has more one-punch knockout power. But I ended up going with Sterling. Look, the salaries and the odds are, you know, it's essentially a pick 'em. So I imagine the ownership of both guys is going to be about even. Maybe you'll get a slight edge towards Sanhagen because she'll save a couple hundred bucks or whatever it is. But I think this is going to be close and everything reflects that. Yeah. So. Going into this, I always kind of thought of Sterling as as maybe a middle-of-the-road contender, and I think I was blinded a little bit by some of the performances from earlier in his career. Um, you know, when he took that took back-to-back decision losses, the Brian Caraway and Rafael Asuncio, you know, both split decisions, so could have been there. And then, of course, he got stopped by Marlon Morais, you know, pretty instantly in December of 2017. Um, you know, I had those images in my head. But it really took the recent film session for me to come around because uh, Pedro Munoz, uh, Jimmy Rivera, he put on just 
incredible striking performances in those things. And I think that's like we saw, you know, guys with Cejudo that were rest, like like Cejudo that were wrestling base that start to see their striking really develop. I mean, Sterling, he has that excellent camp. You mentioned the Longo, Longo Serra uh, fight team combo. Um, 101 significant strikes against Rivera, 174 significant strikes against Pedro Munoz. And I was watching him, and I think he is just, he's in such phenomenal physical shape. He's a, an explosive athlete that he's perfect for a three-round fight because those explosive moves that he likes to try um, isn't going to necessarily cost him or drain the gas tank over the course of a five-round fight. So I've been very impressed with what I've seen of Sterling of late. And not that I haven't been impressed with uh, what I've seen of Sandhagen, but uh, it's I just haven't seen as much, and I, I really you know the last couple fights, even the Munoz fight, uh, really sold me on Sterling. So I think my pick here is going to be Sterling. I think he's a good DraftKings play because even though the odds to finish are plus one sixty, um, he's eighty two hundred. I mean your average per fighter is eighty three thirty three, so you technically get a little bit of salary relief using him, and he does have a chance to hit that ten x because look at in his last fight. Um, I mean, granted, Pedro Munoz is a guy that's going to bring the fight to you and will w- w- is willing to get hit, but 174 significant strikes he was credited with. So that leaves the door open to get 10x even in a decision. So I like that. Um, I did want to make a case for Sandhagen, though, just uh, because, you know, just try, try to see the other side of the coin because we both kind of have the Sterling picks. Um, Sterling did look good in that last fight against Munoz, but he faded a little bit towards the end, and he took a lot of shots. I mean, he did absorb 105 significant strikes, and his left leg was starting to be almost to the point where it was toast in round three. He hit it really well, but, um, you know, his left leg did, definitely took a beating, and, you know, he's had over a year to recover from that, so I'm not worried about anything like that. But uh, in... Sandhagen's fight against Asuncion, 23 of his 62 significant strikes were to the legs. Sandhagen has very impressive leg kicks. He utilizes that low calf kick that's become so popular in MMA. And I think that uh, Sandhagen could give him trouble with the leg kicks, but I have enough faith in Sterling to kind of lean on that wrestling background to take the fight to the mat should that become an issue at any point. And then Sterling, of course, has shown the strides in his striking game. So I think in all the aspects of MMA, the big ones here, uh, I'm going to give Sterling the edge, and I think it'll be Sterling that will be fighting Piotr Jan for the Bantamweight Championship at some point in late 2020 or early 2021. Uh, This one goes to Sterling for me. I might have a little Sandhagen exposure too. I mean, the price is so low for a fighter of his caliber. I'm going to get both sides of this across the the lineup construction here, but the the edge and exposure is going to go to Sterling, and the straight up pick is Sterling to win the fight. So that's how I see that one. Yeah, I you know you you make some good points about Sterling the early portion of his career, but you can watch his last few fights and be a casual fan and legitimately see the guy keeps getting better and better. It's it's no secret. Yeah, yeah, the improvement, the path, the trajectory. I just like where he's going. And, I mean, Sandhagen's super young, and he could very well be a future champion, too. I have him ranked pretty high on on some dynasty rankings I put out, I don't know, maybe a month ago when we were in a big hiatus and I needed some content uh, to throw out there. But Sandhagen's definitely high in in that sense. But I don't think he's quite there just yet. I think uh, he drops this one to Sterling. So it was one of the toughest ones I've had to make. Uh, this, again, I went back and forth when with but i'm sticking to my original one and going sterling in this one um and and i and i feel pretty confident in that one now so um i'm gonna move on here we got a welterweight bout you know we're gonna take a break from the bantamweights for just a second neil magny anthony rocco martin magny 8700 martin 7500 magny a minus 145 betting favorite come back on martin plus 125 
I know you've had mixed feelings about Magny over the years, John, but uh, what do you think his chances are of pulling this one out? Well, I'm going to pick him, which means he's certainly going to lose. Because I th- <laughs> and Magny fights a lot. Magny's like the most active fighter on the roster, and I think I've literally picked against him like a dozen times in a row, and he almost always wins. So I'm probably wrong here, but um, I'm going to go with him. Uh, look, uh, the story on Magny hasn't changed. It- it's always been the same. Nothing he does inside the octagon is pretty. He doesn't have a ton of power. He's not particularly athletic. Um, it's not a it's not a sexy profile, if you want to say. But the guy wins more than he loses. Yeah. And yeah, and the, he the you know, track he, record shows it. It does, and he's he wins more than he loses. And you know, I think Magny could retire tomorrow. And you would have to term his career a gigantic success. Um, I'll never forget back early in his UFC career. Um, he fought Gassan Umalatov February 2014, UFC 169 in New Jersey. And I was there's the first fight on the card. And he was a nobody. And he's probably had a good, I don't know, 15, 20 UFC fights since then. Um, what Maggie is really good at, one, he has good size for the division. He's six foot three. So that certainly helps him. But he's just really good at making fight by fight adjustments. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about Cody Garbrandt, about how he doesn't do that, how he's the same guy no matter who he's facing. Magny is willing to change up his game plan in order to win a fight, which is what you're supposed to do. Um, he, he got destroyed. By Santiago Ponzinibbio back in November 2018, which wasn't shocking. Ponzinibbio's, you know, an excellent fighter. Mm-hmm. But Magni returned this past March against Li Jingliang in a fight I believe Li was favored. And Magni. Oh, yeah. Took Li was a, a p- big favorite. Yeah. yeah. Magni took a pretty healthy, unanimous decision there. You know, that wasn't close. He won that one going away. It was dominant. Um, I mean, 74 to 16 in significant strikes, 4 to 2 in takedowns. He passed guard twice. He was, it showed him a complete all around, just excellent performance in that one against I, someone that was overmatched. Yeah, he, and as I said, Magni fights a lot, and he's lost twice since August 2016. So, you know, we're going on four years now. And those setbacks came against Ponzinibbio and Rafael Dos Andros. So, you know, you're looking at two of the best fighters in the sport. No shame in losing to either of those guys. Now, Tony Martin, Anthony Rocco Martin, um, it's a little bit of a different situation. The record's positive. He's 5-1 and one in his last six fights. Um, the lone loss was a lopsided fight against Damian Maya where he was just smothered and run out of the building. Um, it's a tough – I'm kind of split here because Martin is – if you watch Martin fight, he's definitely better than he was early in his UFC career. The improvements are noticeable. He does a lot of things well. I wouldn't say he does anything great. But there are red flags that as you, more you dig, you pick up some red flags. He has one knockout in his entire career, and he's a submission specialist, which is fine. But if you're a submission specialist, you have to generally get be able to get the fight to the ground. And Martin averages under one takedown, well under one takedown, 0.68 per 15 minutes. So he has problems getting his opposition to the mat where he can implement what is his biggest strength. So he relies on his opposition to make mistakes. And that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm going to take Magni here. Um, say what you want about Magni. You know, he doesn't have a ton of power. He's not a great athlete. 
uh, Magni is never overwhelmed inside the octagon. He, he, he fights at his pace. He sticks with his game plan. And he just goes about his business. And I think for Martin to win this fight, I think Magny is going to have to do something stupid. And that's not how he fights. So I'm going to go with Magny. As I said earlier, I'm probably wrong. But I think this is this is the pick here. Um, I do think he's a little overpriced. I'm not crazy about his salary. 8700 seems like too much for me. I, I'd feel a lot better if he was more like... 8,300, 8,400, somewhere in there. 8,700 is a little high, but I do think he's going to win. You're not getting great odds value on that with him being around minus 145, but way up there at 8,700. You know, it's not super great. But uh, yeah, this was another fight I I had a really hard time with. You know, we're back and forth here. Magni is very capable of putting up uh, big scoring on DraftKings. I mean, he put up 102 against Kelvin Gastelum in a loss. Um, you know, he's had some some massive... Knights at 139 against Hector Lombard once. This is a little bit of a different story here for me, though. I was, I'll start by saying I was crazy impressed with his impressive performance against Leach in uh, March, March of uh, 2020. So pretty recently, I was impressed by that. And at first, I thought that I was going to for sure pick him away, uh, just just pick him going away. You know, I bought the improvement. He looked like he used his long time off to really get better as a fighter. Um, but I'm not crazy about him in DFS, one, because of the price tag, two, because this will be a generally tough opponent to uh, land on. I mean, Rocco Martin absorbs 2.45 significant strikes per minute, which, uh, you know, eh, not that great. You know, at least he has a positive striking differential. But, man, I've been back and forth on this one. I was originally going to pick Magni square in a way, but what I do think is um, that Ro- Rocco Martin has a, um, has a better chance of being in the millionaire lineup because Magny's path to, vis- to victory here is pretty much most likely a decision, which he can be productive in a decision, but uh, Martin's path to victory, on the other hand, is I think it's a submission. And I think Magny can be submitted because in his seven losses, he's been submitted four times. And it's usually been to crazy leak grapplers. And like you said, there are questions about Rocco Martin's, uh, you know, his ability to get takedowns. But we were talking, we, we just had that takedown defense discussion. Uh, Magny has only been taken down twice in like his last five fights or something like that. Um, but his takedown defense is still only 59%, which isn't, it's, it's not horrific, but it's not necessarily what I'd call elite by any means. So, um, and you know, I've been back and forth even right up until this very moment, but I think I, I'm going to go with Rocco Martin here. I, you know, I'm going to make that pick. I'm going to say by submission because he's someone that you might need to uh, get a little crafty with in DFS. Uh, I just I don't think I'm going to have a lot of Magni in DFS. Maybe like 20% tops uh, because of that price tag, and, and I have doubts about his ability to hit value there. Um, you know, I could very well wake up tomorrow morning, post that fix, and feel differently about this. But I think I'm going to go Rocco Martin now. But this one's very very tight. Yeah, this is another close one. The last, um, the last three fights you spoke about are all, mm-hmm. are all close. Um, I, you know, I just I don't feel particularly comfortable about either guy from a DraftKings setting. Mm-hmm. So if you have other people, other fighters you think might pay off better, or you feel more comfortable about, you know, this might be one you want to look at skipping and you know mixing and playing around with things. Yeah, exactly. There's some interesting ones on the underdog 
or on the undercard, I should say, to um, you know possibly mix in as well. Guys in that eighty seven hundred tier that I like a little bit better to get uh, to get a stoppage here, but we'll talk about that a little bit more at the end here. Uh, I want to talk about a bantamweight matchup between uh, Eddie Wineland and Sean O'Malley. Back to the bantamweights here. This one though, in terms of the analysis, leans a little bit closer to that first fight of the card than the last three we talked about. Um, you know, this is. O'Malley's a big favorite uh, running away. He's uh, a minus 475 betting favorite. The comeback on Wineland is uh, plus 380. O'Malley on DraftKings here is 9,300. And uh, <laughs> Wineland is uh, 6,900. I think you've got a – what I see here is a young prospect that Dana White, Sean Shelby, and company – would not put him in a spot they think he could lose to open up a pay-per-view because I think they want they see him as marketable. He's an asset. They, they want to get him fans. They want to get him a stoppage. The odds to finish on this are minus 285. Uh, so welcome to the Sugar Show. This is a pretty easy fight for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Not nothing fancy here. Um, I think they're pretty much, like you mentioned, I think the UFC is openly essentially sacrificing Eddie Wineland for this fight. Um, Wineland is was was a really good fighter at one point former wec bantamweight champion um but he's you know turned he's turned 36 years old later this month he's four and five dating back to september 2013 and stylistically this is a horrible matchup for him um wineland is just a straightforward bite down on a mouthpiece come after you brawler and that's the last the last type of opponent he should be facing at this stage of his career is a young five foot 11 creative striker like O'Malley. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, yeah, I agree with you in the sense. I don't think the UFC would put O'Malley in a spot where they thought they could fail. He, they thought he could fail and anything can happen in this sport. That's why they have the fights. But um, this is, this one's really easy. Uh, I think O'Malley really has, you know, we're going to need to see him fight against higher level competition. And this isn't that, you know, I don't think even if O'Malley wins this one in 10 seconds, you know, it does, it's not going to do a ton for him in the sense that yeah. this is a fight he was supposed to win. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I do think there's I think the ceiling here is really, really high. And um, I have zero interest in um, Wineland despite the dirt cheap salary. Yeah, I mean, if O'Malley wins in dominant fashion, that'll be two early stoppages in a row for him. What's next It will be tough. He might take the loser or one of the earlier bantamweight fights, but even that might be too much of a step up for him. I don't know. That That's going to be tight. But the big question I have here is, since they're about the same price, who scores more, Nunez or Sugar Show? Oh, Jesus. Um, I, believe it or not, I, like... It's hard. If you had I to almost, put a money line on it, I think the edge would go to Nunez because there's two extra rounds. That that was exactly what I was going to say. I want it straight up. I kind of want to say O'Malley, but Nunez has the two extra rounds. Now, will it, you know, it, it's it's anybody's guess if the fight doesn't end before then and she doesn't get to use those two extra rounds, but it, that's certainly an advantage. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, Spencer was pretty tough out there against Cyborg, so I think O'Malley might have a better shot of putting Wineland away in the very first round or early than Nunez does Spencer, but I'm not saying that can't happen either. I mean, Nunez, is, she's the GOAT for a reason. Her strikes are just tremendously well-timed. She's very well coached. It's going to be tough, man. This is uh, the first DraftKings lineup. Like, I mean, if you're using, uh, you know, say a couple of those underdogs, say you use some of the guys, Asuncio and Rocco Martin, it's not completely out of the question to uh, to put both Nunez and O'Malley in a lineup. And I think that's going to be um, a winning combination. I, I just joined a pool 
last week um, uh, with a Twitter friend that um, you have to pick three fighters on every single card and uh, basically three fighters to win. Doesn't matter the odds, doesn't matter how many times you use someone, but then when one fighter loses, uh, you only get two picks for the next card and it's like survivor it, it keeps going and i know for a fact i'm picking nunez and o'malley uh the third one is what i'm struggling on a little bit and uh we'll have to get to that towards the end of the week i'm starting to lean menafield but I'm, I'm i'm getting to that but before we get too far on the undercard uh let's talk about some upsets john uh you know anything else any any notes on the card any fight uh fights that you're particularly excited for or guys that you think have a real shot at an upset well, I mean, the, the the fight I'm looking forward to most is easy. That's Sandhagen and Sterling. Mm-hmm. Um, the one guy I I thought when I looked at the salaries and you know all that stuff, the one guy I thought on the undercard who I thought had a decent chance of paying off was Juicier Formiga at 7900. Um, fighting Alex Perez, who's 8300. Formiga's plus 120. Perez minus 140. And um, you know, for a long time, Formiga was one of the most underrated fighters in the flyweight division. He never got any press, but just went about his business. Had a bit of a rough run recently, back-to-back losses, knockout against Joseph Benavidez, unanimous decision against Brandon Moreno. But, you know, this is a guy who's been, you know, who has big wins over in his career. By I mean, look, I mean, he beat Devastin Figueredo. Uh, mm-hmm. last March, so only you know, about a year ago, via unanimous decision. So this is a guy with big wins under his belt. Um, you know he's hoping Figueiredo wins the title eventually, and he, he can run out his you know mm-hmm. spiel. Hey, I beat that guy less you know about a year ago. I'm next in line. So I looked at that and I thought he was I thought he was definitely a potential value play. Yeah, yeah, I, I like him. Um, I believe we own him in our dynasty league that we do together. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. So we'll have a chance. I, I felt pretty good. Someone was trying to see the thing is someone was trying to trade for him uh, before the Moreno fight. And I was like, you know, we need to get a certain amount of fights. And, you know, a lot of that that league is about volume, having guys that fight a lot. And I was like, I don't think I can give up a fight plus one that I think he's going to win. And then, of course, he goes out and loses to Moreno and he's there. But I think uh, I mean, the activity is absolutely it's very helpful. So, um yeah, I mean, I agree with that too. Alex Perez has looked pretty good, you know, won four of his first five fights. But, uh, you know, for, I don't know about the finishing rate on this one. And Formiga doesn't do a whole lot of striking, so he's not a great uh, DraftKings scorer. But I think he's a good cash game play because he has a pretty good chance to win for someone that uh, is an underdog and, of course, helps lead you to getting Nunez and O'Malley in this one. Uh, here's one that I'm interested in um, a little bit. He's kind of a big dog, but he paid off for me the last time I used him on DraftKings. So there's a little bit of a soft spot there. Um, I'm talking about Brian Kelleher, who enters as a plus 225 underdog against Cody Stammen. He's had, I mean, he continues to be an underdog, and he continues to come through here. I think that even with the move up in weight to featherweight, He's got some power in his hands. Now, Cody Stammen, arguably a step up from Ode Osborne and, and Hunter Azur. But, um, you know, back-to-back post-fight bonuses for Boom Keller. He's got four bonuses in his career. I know he's up a weight class, but uh, he's pretty cheap. And I don't know. He's got enough power in his hands to maybe sneak into that Millie lineup. Uh, you, you with me there or are you on Stammen? I like Stammen to win. I, I just – my problem with Keller is every time he's, has to, he's fought somebody who – you would consider better competition. He's lost, and that that worries me a little. And I th- I actually think Stammen's pretty good. Um, look, I I'd, I'd have no problem getting a piece of Keller somewhere. I, I think he's you know he's a decent play, but I like Stammen to win that fight. 
Yeah, I, again, maybe that's partially like, you know, when you draft a guy in a fantasy league one year, he has an awesome year, you want to draft him again next year because, you know, you feel good about him or, or you, our guy sours you, vice versa. I think I might have a little bit of that coming in, but uh, I don't know. Boom Kelleher maybe has a has a shot here with me. I want to see what the uh, – I haven't really referred to the ELO much on uh, that Fight Matrix site here. Um, yeah, one of yeah, – it's still it's still pretty heavy on stamina. I see that. Um Anybody else you're looking at? Like for that pool I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking for another favorite that, that is likely to get a stoppage, and I'm kind of down between like a Charles Bird and an Alonzo Manifield. He's going up against pretty much a pure wrestler in Devin Clark. Any value in any of those guys at all? I, You know, it's hard. I, the one guy I thought really was a decent value was – I liked Herbert Burns against Evan Dunham. Um, at the time I wrote my preview article, um, this fight was made recently within the last handful of days. At the time I wrote the article, they didn't have DraftKings salaries up for this fight. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we were able to. Me. I got to go put them in there. <laughs> yeah, we were able to get Vegas odds. Dunham is plus two hundred. Burns is minus two forty. Um, but we weren't able to get the salaries at the time. But hey, uh, Burns is the brother of Gilbert Burns. Who we saw what he did to Tyron Woodley last week, so <laughs> some something good going on in that family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I'm glad that they have 12 fights too, because the last couple have kind of been at 11, and that makes things pretty difficult from a DFS standpoint, especially when you get the situations like the Rodriguez Holland last week, where Rodriguez stays at 7,300, which is very cheap, and then suddenly becomes a minus 370, 380 favorite. You know, so that uh, what happens then is you get a ton of duplicate lineups, and uh, even if you know you win the million you're splitting it 20, 30, 40 ways. So it's not as cool of a payday here. Um, this, at least with 12 fights, hopefully, you know, knock on wood, they all stay intact. Um, there's some tough weight cuts ahead, but hopefully they all stay intact. And, uh, you know, we have a full 12 fight card and maybe someone out there can go ahead and bank that $1 million for themselves. That'd be pretty cool. Um, you know, of course to do that, you got to leave salary on the table and you definitely have to be confident in, uh, some of those dogs. So it's, it's going to be tough, man, but, uh, it's exciting times for us and, and our sport and for the content we produce. And, uh, we really appreciate everyone checking in and listening. So, uh, I think we'll wrap it up with that. Thanks again for listening to the podcast, of course, brought to you by ESPN plus the only place that you can watch UFC. 250 um john any closing thoughts uh yeah i mean i just you know if you know you're going after that million just remember your lineup is going to look weird you know you're going to look at your lineup mm-hmm. you submit and you're going to say oh wow you know this can this isn't going to win me anything mm-hmm. that's the lineup that's going to win it so just remember that when you're yep. when you're making when you're making your changes and you, you know you think your lineup isn't you know, isn't a winning lineup because you have underdogs and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're one, if your loan entry in the in the millionaire maker uses all of your salary or only leaves one two hundred on the table, like maybe you want to rethink that because GPP. And maybe you want to take that lineup, go put it in a cash game, and then try a new one for this uh, for this GPP. Because I'm with you, definitely uh, got to be a little bit unique here in this situation. I mean. Obviously, neither of us think Wineland or Spencer have, have has a chance, but if one of them comes out and gets the most shocking first-round upset since Holm Rousey, then all of a sudden you've got a fast track to the millionaire maker. So uh, yep. that would be something, man. But uh, whew, it's a it's – a, I'm warming up to this card. I wasn't too excited about it eventually, but these bantamweight fights are, are outstanding, and uh, it's going to be a fun time here. Uh, but again, that's going to do it. Uh, once again, I'm Jake Letarski. Follow me at Roto Jake. He's John Littering. You can follow him at J-O-N-L-I-T-T-E-R-I-N-E. 
We're going to be back with you guys prior to UFC 251, uh, whenever and wherever that might be. Maybe Fight Island might see the debut of Fight Island if that's in July, but uh, definitely stay tuned to rotowire.com slash MMA. Follow at rotowire MMA for all the latest fight updates. We'll keep you posted, and uh, best of luck to you guys with all your lineups.